The reading this morning is from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to become himself through Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ God, who is reconciliating the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of God to be reconciled to God. For our sake, we made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become his righteousness of God. This is word of the Lord. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up. Uh, what I wanted to say, I wanted to preface uh, what we're about to see, which is a video um, put out by the Bible Project about a series they did on the bad words of the Bible. So bad words being sin, iniquity, and transgression. These words are all across scripture, but uh, today I wanted to begin a three-week series about learning about these words and what they mean so that we can begin to wrap our minds around it. So this video, the guy speaks really fast. <laughs> Um, so if you're interested in it, you know, going online to the Bible Project, you can find these videos and watch them. Um, so, yeah. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. 
Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one and he says, I have sinned, I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin or moral failure is depicted as this wild hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. I know after the first time I watched that, my head was spinning with all this like information and things that were going on, so I had to rewatch it about a couple times, but there's so much rich content in that video, in the series of videos they put out. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do is kind of go through this series on the bad words, and uh, today focusing in on sin and trying to unpack some of the things that they were saying in that video. Um, so yes, sin, yay for us. We get to discuss this and think about it. 
Um, not to torment or guilt us, uh, but because, again, it's an important concept to begin to get clear and think about. Uh, and the thing that, that I wanted to focus on is that sin is this, is this power, a power at work uh, in us, around us, but which Jesus overcomes and frees us from so that we can truly flourish as God made us. Um, so sin is this word that, that sounds awful, right? It's like horrible. Like, and I just often wonder what sometimes how this happened. Like how do we get such an ugly word? And, and not only that, but um, like as the video described, the words in Hebrew, which is chata, and also hamartia in Greek are similarly ugly. <laughs> if you uh, don't agree with me, it's fine. But like in Hebrew, chata sounds like the word that somebody yells when they're judo chopping another person. Chata, right? Or, or hamartia sounds like that, that like hummus dip that is brought out at like a holiday party amidst all the other things that come out as traditional dishes. And like the host comes up and says, oh, would you like to try my hamartia? And you're like, what is that? Gross. I'm a harma pass on that one. Uh, but this is words gross and makes my soul kind of shake. So um, one of the things that, that I found interesting from the video is how our word in the English language um, doesn't exactly get to the full expression of what it means in the scriptural story. Uh, and the ways in which the scripture writers use it to describe bad things that happen in life that are contrary to all that God designed for this world and for us. If you, if you looked up sin in the dictionary, it would say an immoral act considered to be con- transgression against God's law. So our word has this uh, sense about breaking religious laws or codes or rules. But chata or hamartia had a wealth of meanings, one being missing the mark. Like when you, you know, throw a dart at the dartboard and you miss the bullseye, or maybe for you, you miss the dartboard completely, you know? It also had the meaning of, of going astray and missing the intended destination. And you know about this if you've ever tried to follow a map when you're in the woods and you get a little lost. But another interpretation of the word emphasized the legal infraction. Chata, or hamartia, can mean to err or break the law. Take driving as an example. When we drive, we're under these rules that inform us how to get to point A to point B with a way that both respects and cares for ourselves and for others who are on the road. So when we are distracted in a lot of different ways by our phones while driving, we are erring in that we are endangering both ourselves and others who are on the road as they travel. For the people of Israel, whose civil laws were always connected to what God said and these divine laws, to sin was to err by doing things that did not work toward honoring God or that vision that respected and honored all people. And so this is where our English connotation kind of gravitates toward and is connected to the moral failure. And, and uh, the other thing I was thinking about this is the way that we use it or describe it um, I came up with a great example of this this morning as I was taking this like recycling bin out of out of my kitchen and going down to um, 
outside to throw it in the other bin. So I go out there, there's two bins, and I throw it into the bin, and what happens is I close the lid, and I notice that the recycling is over there. <laughs> and I'm like, I really don't want to fish through all that, all that gunk, it's going to be messy. And I just, ugh, why did this happen? So I almost walked away, but I didn't, because I was like, no, this is good to put it in the recycling. So I took the time this morning, and it was like not very full, so I had to really get in there, like deep down, I was like gunky and filthy, you know, transferring it over, and I'm not sure that I got all of it, and it was just like gross. <laughs> and I think this is kind of like a description of, of sin. We just find ourselves in, in, for some reason, either our doing or just for the sake of benign neglect, of doing, being in a situation where we're trying to get ourselves out of it, wading through the gunk of life. And we're not sure we've got everything back to normal. And this is kind of, for me, a, a description of it um, and a way of seeing it and thinking about it. And I wanted to, to transition to, to thinking about this one part of um, the video that, that came across. And it wasn't about bullseyes or missing the map but it was about the very first instance of the use of the word sin, which was in Genesis, the word chata used to describe a pervasive, consuming power that's a contradiction to God's design. So I wanted to focus on this, that sin is this, this power that corrupts us, that separates us from God, and we, in fact, are powerless to overcome. Scripture opens with this amazing story, right? We heard at the very beginning about the beauty and goodness of all creation and how through one wily serpent, sin snakes its way in and creates separation between humans and God. The story doesn't give an answer for how it snuck in or why it is, only that it has and the poison has affected everything in creation. Symptoms felt between God and humans, between humans and humans, between humans and creation. And the fever of the fall is soon seen in the first episode after that, in chapter 4, with the sons of Adam and Eve. The video describes it well. It says that um, Adam and Eve give into this beastly temptation to define good and evil on their own wisdom, and then their son Cain is faced with a similar choice. Cain's jealous and angry that God favored his brother, and so he wants to kill his brother. But God warns him, why has your countenance fallen? Choose what is good. And if you don't, you, won't you be accepted if you choose what's good? But if you don't, Chata is crouching at the door and is ready to pounce, and it wants you. So sin is this beast that wants to devour us. And if, if you've ever been consumed by anger, which anger is not a bad thing in and of itself, I think it could be a right thing and a good thing, but when we are consumed by it, perhaps you know the feeling of being devoured, and you know the reference that I'm making here. In this story, we learn that sin, chata, is a power at work in the world and deep down within us that twists our desires, desires which God made for good and for care of creation and care for each other, and instead, sin warps these desires and makes them self-serving or destructive at the expense of others. And so it's a, it's a power at work in the world that 
corrupts what God designed as good and for good. There's a phrase that some Christians use to describe this, um, and it is called incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se, which means turned inward or curved inward on itself. And it is a way of describing how sin has turned our desires inward ourselves rather than outward upon God and others. And Cain is an example of how he loses this battle, a human who loses this battle against the inner beast, and he takes the the life of his brother. And this desire that's turned in upon itself leads to relational destruction for all these different people in the human family. And the story of Scripture points out the deep truths that this is not far off from an existence in the world that we live in. Perhaps this helps to make sense of some of the struggles that we face internally. You and me, we are created good and beautiful with this wonderful design to bear this image of care and love in the world for ourselves and for others, with our jobs, school, and with the communities that we live and work in. But we, like Cain, come up against the hungry beasts and the ugly, curved desires of ourselves whatever that might be, jealousy or consuming anger or lust or neglects, any number of things within us. But we can also look around to institutions like our own government or governments in the world or corporations that have a way of serving only their own needs and themselves and benefiting themselves and stripping others of justice and equity and freedoms. Sin is a powerful beast lurking at the door which we struggle against and which we wish to outrun or overcome. And the ugly truth and goal of, of sin, of this power, is that it tries to separate us from what we were created for, which is life for God, with God. Life with God is what we were created for. It's it's. This division, this separation is seen in the story of Scripture in the very beginning with Ab and Eve where the serpent speaks something and it creates this division between the humans. Or, think of what's happening to Cain. He becomes jealous of his brother and his countenance drops. Literally, his face drops. When I was in seminary, I, I was having lunch one day with a professor and I asked him, hey, what, what is faith? And I'll never forget it, he's this tall, lanky guy, and he just like, all of a sudden, drops his fork and throws up his eyes and his hands. He says, faith is this posture of openness where we are open to God, and all of ourselves is directed toward God. But the power of sin is to make our faces turn away and to turn downward like Cain, to create distance and space that only grows and grows. It's a power that wants our hearts to hide behind walls that it can build, build from God or from each other. And ultimately, is the power that creates death, which was considered the ultimate separation from God and from the life for which we are created. Sin is a power that we struggle against, not unlike the Israelites, not unlike the Israelites, God people from long ago who were called 
out of a tough place of Egypt into a land of freedom where God gave them these Ten Commandments, as the, as the, as the video said. Ten Commandments to live this life of love for, other, for each other, for God. It was this getting back to the original vision. But Israel struggled and could not keep all these commands. They struggled against the power of sin that lurked at the door to devour them. And their long history is a history of not following that path toward the vision that God set. And so what they had to do is they had to offer continual sacrifices and work to make things right for the wrongs that they did against each other. But they could never outrun the beasts that sought to devour them. Sin is the power that corrupts us, separates us from God, and we are powerless to overcome. And it's a power at work in us when we as individuals or communities do not fully live up to the uniqueness of how God has created us. But there is good news, a hopeful and a powerful word about God and what God does, about the distinctive claim of who Jesus is. Christianity is, after all, the religion of the sinner. That the sinner stands before God, and God wants the sinner. That we are still an object of God's love. God desires us so much, loves us so deeply, longs for all things to be set right, that he becomes what we are. So that things might become right, and we might share in what he is. And there are two ways in which Jesus, God, comes as Jesus, as a human, to work for the benefit of you and for this world. And that is to, first, declare himself as the ruler over this power of sin. And second, succeed in the human struggle against it. And to embody God's vision for life. One of the examples I wanted to pull out to you is in Luke 4. Luke 4 is a picture of this, and Luke 4 accounts, it's at the very beginning of Jesus' life. In Luke 4, Jesus has just been baptized with everybody else in the Jordan River, and then he goes out into the wilderness where he struggles. He becomes weak by not eating or drinking or taking any comfort. And so he embraces the full weight of our weaknesses. And at this point of weakness is when the power of sin, personified as Satan, comes to tempt him. And he refuses all these sins, all of sin's soothsaying, the serpent-like talk that will make him act for his own self-interest or draw him away from God. He overcomes this pressure and commands sin to flee. And it's a picture of God as a human struggling and overcoming something that we cannot overcome or outrun. It is a prelude to the struggle he strives against all his life and the ways he in every way lives a life that brings God delight. After he has this moment in the wilderness, he comes back into town where he goes into the temple, kind of like this here, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah who says, the spirit of God is on me to announce good news to the poor. Release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim God's favor. 
Jesus is God who's come to dwell with us. And God's own spirit dwells in him to confront all the powers of sin and to overcome them and to free us from its captivity and its powers. All of this is a prelude to the fight that Jesus wages as both God and human against the power of sin through his whole life and ultimately is victorious in his death and rising. As Peter put it, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to what is good. He lives a life for us and dies a death for us so that the power of sin in our life might die with him and we who live in him might be able to live a life that delights God. And the point of me saying this is that God sees you. All the beauty and all the brokenness all the faithfulness and all the fragmentation of your life. God sees all the complexities of who you are and God knows. God knows that you don't have it all figured out and that you doubt sometimes and you struggle to believe or even think that following Jesus is gonna make things better. Or maybe God sees you when you are digging through that trash can and trying to make things better. God sees you for all that you are, and the amazing thing is that God doesn't look away. But God still moves towards you in love. And so we come here and we worship and celebrate and put our trust in one who has overcome all these things for us because he loves us. He loves you. And there is no power in this world within you or around you that can separate you from that love, that can take you away from the spirit that God has poured into you to guide you and advocate you when the, when the lies come. God loves you and is with you, Winwood. And God calls us to this vision, to walk in the Spirit and follow His Son, Jesus, so that we can strive to live lives that bring God delight and honor each other and calls us together as a community so that we can flourish in the face of the world's ills and so that we can be a beacon of light and hope to a world that God loves so much. Let's pray. God, you are always speaking. And I pray that words that are not of you that I have said might not take root at all in the minds or hearts of those who have heard them. But what my words have said, may they be something that can communicate the beauty and the wonder and the truths of your grace. So be powerfully present in what has been heard, O Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.